0: The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast with me, Claire Armistead.
1: And me, Richard Lee.
0: This week, Marza Mengiste takes us back to the 1930s with a novel of Ethiopian women fighting back against fascist Italy. And later in the show, we'll be talking with journalist and biographer Ida Edemariam about why this landlocked country in the Horn of Africa is having a bit of a moment. After exploring the Ethiopian revolution of the 1970s with her debut novel, Beneath the Lion's Gaze, Marza Mengiste delves further back into the country's history with The Shadow King. The novel charts Mussolini's invasion of Ethiopia in 1935 and the brutality which followed, shedding light on the women whose part in the struggle has been erased from history. When she came into the studio to talk to Richard, she began by reading a passage from the novel where Asta accuses her maid of stealing a necklace, and has gone to the servants' room to conduct a search.
2: She is standing below the window, the blanket and gun dangling from her hand. A stench that Hirut has never gotten used to wafts by. It comes from a short stack of stones near the entrance where, as a boy, Kidana learned to slaughter sheep for special occasions beneath those stones is a small shallow ditch where blood used to flow that's what you smell the cook said to her when she first arrived at the house it's the rot of blood you'll get used to it still in the room is the stink of old blood of helpless animals of the piss and excrement that seeped into dirt instinct and fear working together whose gun is this Hirut says it's mine The rifle was Hirut's father's most prized possession. It was too big for the small crate, so Hirut kept it tucked into the pile of straw and blankets that she uses as a mattress, all of it covered by a large sheet that she knots at the corners to keep intact. On those nights, when she is at her most tired, she sleeps so she can feel the rifle by her side and pretend it is her mother's arm. Aster holds the rifle to light. It's old, she says. She runs a finger over the five grooves in the barrel, marks that Hirut's father said helped him count the Italians he killed. Do you know how to use it? She weighs its heft, testing its balance. My father taught me, like he taught my brothers. She presses the butt against her shoulder, one hand steadying the barrel. Where did you get it? From home, Hirut says. Home exactly five kilometers from this place that is also called Aster and Kidana's house. Five kilometers, a distance that Hirut will not comprehend until later, when she realizes that all things, even those things lost, can be put down on paper and measured. What she comprehends standing at the threshold of her tiny room staring at Aster is that even if she could run back at a fast sprint, It would not decrease the distance separating her from the plot of land that holds her parents' bones. She is far from home.
1: Far from home indeed, thanks for that. Um, So where did this story start? Why did you want to tell the story of the women who fought in the war between Ethiopia and fascist Italy?
2: When I, you know, when I first started this story, I had no, I really had no idea about the women who fought in the war. I was initially going to tell the story of the war as I had been told it by family, by friends, just by common knowledge in Ethiopia. And that story was a group of fighters gathering together, an army in Ethiopia rising up to confront one of Europe's most technologically advanced militaries at that time. I imagine the men, because that's all we ever talked about. Soldiers were men. Um, people who would point out, people who had fought, they were all men. Um, I didn't know as a child that there was any other possibility in war or in fighting. And as I grew older, I had been so inspired by this story that I had a feeling when I was even thinking about writing that this was a story I would like to put down on paper. Once I started researching this to actually write it, however, um, I started finding small bits of information about women. Women who were more actively involved than I had thought. And then I would find a photograph here or there. Then I would find a headline and then a newspaper article. And I thought, why didn't I ever hear about this?
1: Because when you stopped to look, there they were all along.
2: All along. And we had forgotten, because they had been written about. They had been documented brief in brief moments. And I, I, I turned this book around. I started revising, editing, rewriting everything again, and moved along. It took several more years of writing. And then, when I was almost done with it, Um, I happened to be on a last-minute research trip in Ethiopia, and it had been a road trip. So my mother and I were driving with a cousin of mine for about nine hours through the highlands of Ethiopia, talking about the book, stopping at different places that I needed to look at. And it wasn't until we came back to Addis Ababa. We came back home. I'm telling her about other research, and she just casually mentioned that my great-grandmother had been in the war. (laughs) I just remember, it was one of those moments where I was truly stunned at the information that just fell in front of me, and so casually. Uh, She just, I said, why didn't you tell me this before? I have been doing this for years. (laughs) And she said, well, you never asked. Um, And that was also something that I hadn't thought to ask, was this in my family, even as I was researching? I never knew that that was a question to ask. Um, now I do. Now I'm asking everything I can think of, but I had no idea at that time. And I'd, I had already done research. I knew that these women existed, but now it confirmed for me that these, these women, there was one in my own family.
1: And that these stories had yeah. been, in some sense, real. put aside. Yes. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. You also, I mean, you put Evelyn Waugh scoffing at Abyssinia alongside <laughs> old Atto and his beloved YZero mm. Nunush in front of their hut proclaiming, there is nothing that can come from this but blood and more blood. Yes. Was this another thing you were driving at, the idea of putting these kind of famous white writers up against the good sense of the people who were there all along?
2: Yes, the famous white racist writers, yeah. yes. Um, I I read... Wall's books in Ethiopia. And I think, like many people, if I had been there, I would have wanted to punch him as well. (laughs) Um, He's he's a really good writer, uh, very funny, uh, but he was pro-fascist at that time. And it was very interesting reading his work. And I wanted to put these, I wanted to put him in there, but I wanted Ethiopians to comment in some way to the writings of so many uh, Europeans and Americans who went, to, um, who went to Ethiopia as pro-fascists to write about the war. Um, and uh, yeah, so we have these two people, farmers, who step out of their hut to make a comment after I mention Wall. Yeah,
1: yeah, again, other voices <laughs> that, that we sometimes don't hear. Yeah. I mean, the novel's also filled, as well as voices, it's filled with photographs, or at least descriptions of photographs. And then it's bookended by these two portraits. What's the relationship between these, these images and the, and the images you describe in the book?
2: Um, I'm all, I have been interested for a long time in, in what photographs manage to camouflage even as closely as we can look at them that there are these coded invisible messages that we get and we don't often realize that's that's what's happening when we're looking especially when it comes to photographs that are um deal in any way with sub- people who were subjected to colonialism people who are survivors or victims of war um that i'm I'm also concerned with not only what's in the frame, but what is it that's beyond the frame that we don't see. For example, the photographer. When the Italians were taking photographs of these proud warriors, Ethiopian warriors, with their spears or with their rifles in poses that were uh, that were very aggressive, the message is not, look how brave these men are. The message is, we can stand in front of them and they won't hurt us. It's about the Italian, it's, about, it's a photograph of domination. And so
1: by writing about the photographs, yeah. you can give the reader that frame. And this
2: is why I, yes, and I did not want to put the photographs in the book. I want the photographs to move within the frame. I want the, the reader to be inside it um, as much as that character is.
1: Kidani's father makes an explicit link between the sexual violence of Asta's wedding night and the violence of war saying, let this be training for later. And then sexual violence runs through the book. I mean, is this reportage? Is this just a faithful telling of women's experience at at, at this time in this place? Or were you going to find these moments, going to find Mm. these stories because you wanted to explore how war is often fought on women's bodies as well?
2: Well, I think we know that from centuries of war that w- women are both contested territory and trophies. That when an enemy goes into any any conquered space, the first thing they do is take the women and the girls or rape them as a sign of power, as a way to um, truly infiltrate that land. So I think we've always, we have known that. But I, um, in that scene with Kidane and Aster and this idea of spilling blood and then spilling blood as a warrior that it's that I I'm looking at manhood I am looking at what we think makes a man and how boys are raised to become men and the lessons they're taught and usually as teenagers or as young men it's about sex and then as they got get older it's about war and aggression
1: uh, but you say that again that the that it's a, it's a well-known fact yes. that that war and violence against women are in- inextricably linked yes. but it seems to me that in the stories that you thought you were going to be telling at the beginning those stories might not have been heard a simple, story, stories, of, of, a oh, simple yes. story of story he- of heroic rejection of the of the colonial invader doesn't necessarily have space for that
2: exactly but and this is uh, you know this the stories that i was Growing up with, I learned as an adult very quickly when I was starting to research this. I don't know anything about this war. As you're saying, there was no space in that telling for these moments that were less than heroic, but very much about the kind of aggression that someone needs to confront an enemy, supposedly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, yes, it it really once I started breaking apart what I would need. The knowledge I would need to tell this story I quickly realised how much I didn't know. I
1: yes. mean even in the most shocking scenes um, as when Kidane rapes Asta on her wedding night you let your third person narrator give us the thoughts of both Asta who's yeah. still imagining escape and also of Kidane who's at first unsure of what to do with the girl though only we the reader, only we know it was that ability to slide between the victim and the person who is doing the oppressing, was that why you wanted to keep in a third-person narrator rather than give them out to individual first-person voices? That's
2: interesting. Yes, I want that. Fr- I wanted that. That freedom, that malleability to move from one to the other.
1: I mean, you even draw connections of feeling across the most stark divides. I mean, you have Asta facing that horror of her wedding night, telling herself there is no way out but through it, and then you have Ettore, who tells himself there is no way but forward when the telegram arrives and he's facing arrest. Oh indeed Fucelli, your 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 colonial bad guy the 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 man at the heart of the book who is bad through and through and through, tells his soldiers almost in the same way he shouts, "There is no way but through it. There's no escape but forward yeah. I mean that's you're giving them literally the same words
2: yes that for me was was at the heart of the book, this idea uh, what is a soldier? What is a fighter but someone who barrels through? whatever opposition is in front of them. But I wondered how that mantra could be complicated each time someone different said it in different situations.
1: After all the violence in the book, after everything that Hirut has gone through, in the final battle she finds some sort of peace almost as she sprints along alongside Asta, the woman who beat her almost to death, and alongside Kidane, the man who raped her. Is this peace, this kind of Hmm. feeling of connection? Is this how trauma can be healed by coming together, despite everything that divides you, against Hmm. some common enemy?
2: That's very interesting. I don't want to give too much away. I think after that scene, something else happens Um, in that last battle. And there's a different kind of peace that, that Hirut encounters mm, which yes. is You're
1: right, that's not the end of the book yes, of course, and she yes, reaches a yes. different place but I'm just wondering if that moment tells us something
2: it does it's interesting that you you mentioned that scene because also when I when I think of that moment I won't say very much more but I also think of uh, who else that she will encounter just a few minutes after that which is Ettore and Aklilu is mm. also present in those moments. You're right alongside her. Yeah. Yes. Mm. And that, he seems to be more central. She's not done yet with Kidane, as we know. Mm. Um, So it's, I don't know if it's a piece, but there is something there because Eklilu is next to her. Yes.
1: I wonder, have the rights been sold in Italy yet?
2: They have.
1: What do you think Italian readers are going to make of this book, a <laughs> novel exploring their shameful expedition to Ethiopia?
2: Uh, I was recently in Italy uh, for it It received uh, an award and uh, that will help with its translation and publication and one of the judges said that when the, the group of judges, the jury, read this book, all of them recognized Fuccelli and recognized that character as someone within their family and the man and m- the monster yeah and also that they really one of the other people they thought of was Salvini uh, and they they felt that this is this was a book that needed to be published in Italy so we'll see what happens 2020 is the pub date mm-hmm. sometime this year. Um, I plan to go there at that point we'll see. I'm. You know, I, I'm very I, interested. I, to see um, the kinds of conversations it might raise. Are you
1: bracing yourself, a little?
2: A little bit, but you know, there's been so much support for me from Italians as I was writing this book. So many Italians have come forward to share stories of their family members who were in Ethiopia or in East Africa, and they've been so helpful to me. Um, I think that's also going to be part of the process with with it being in italy I think
1: it's a story that needs to be heard there particularly yes, now yes yeah, i think yeah. i'm wondering kind of what's next is there perhaps a novel which explores that impossible thought the chorus imagines mm-hmm. on Asta's wedding night when the the, the, the thought of, of of the girl mended of kidane mm-hmm. stepping beyond the reach of elders and all who advise growing boys on the perils of weakness yeah. maybe a novel that would explore how a mother could stand at the foot of the stairs and try to catch her daughter mm. who's trying to escape or or what happens to men who, who to make them do these things.
2: That's a whole other world to explore. I feel I've done it here with uh, Kidana. I'm interested to see um, the conversations that that might start with people who are raised with certain obligations uh, but I, I've done it here. I'm, I'm really looking to move, move beyond 1935 now. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that was Marza Mengiste. The Shadow King is published by Canongate in the UK and W.W. Norton in the US. After the break, we'll be talking about some of the other literary riches of Ethiopia.
1: Hello, I'm Max Rushton, and this is Football Weekly. We cover the football, all the football, from the serious... It was the most cowardly, disgusting press conference I've ever seen.
0: ...to the analysis. When you put them in into the actual games, Liverpool are getting more points against XG than Leicester. To the nonsense.
1: And I will be having five English pounds on him to be called a boot winner. What? What? Christian Benteke? Listen to Football Weekly from The Guardian on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome back to the Guardian Books podcast. Asked to name an African writer, most people will pick a Nigerian or a South African. Wole Suinka, perhaps, or J.M. Coetzee. But Marza is far from the only writer of Ethiopian heritage that we should have on our map. Indeed, another of them is with us right now in the studio. Ida Mariam is a Guardian journalist who last year won the RSL on Ondaatje Prize for what the jury described as her outstanding and highly unusual memoir about the life of her grandmother, The Wife's Tale, A Personal History. She was also chosen by the poet Lem Sisse to give the enconium when he received the Pen Pinter Prize a few months back. The very next morning, the Swedish Academy announced that it was awarding the Nobel Peace Prize to the Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed. It was a pretty buzzy couple of days, wasn't it? Yes, Ida. Yeah. Um, and ever since it's happened, I've been thinking we must do something about what's going on in, in Ethiopia. Am I right in thinking that it's having a bit of a moment, or has it always had been? Is it always having moments?
3: Um, I think this moment's been going on for a little while, um, literary-wise, anyway. Um, politically, I can't really speak to, but it has. You know, it's it's currently one of the fastest-growing economies in the world, and that's been true for a good deal of the last decade um, with with books it's, it's sort of been bubbling under but it's been going on for a while so we, you know we had um, who Mangastu uh, whose books have been doing incredibly well
0: who won the first book prize um, mm-hmm. back in 2007 I think with Children of the Revolution yes. which rather bizarrely was called The Beautiful Things that Heaven Bears in America
3: <laughs> maybe that worked better there I <laughs> probably <laughs> um but there's been uh, about yeah about 10 years i guess with him and Maaza's first book there was also um Abraham Varghese, who uh, had indian parents but was born uh, in Ethiopia um a lot of the, the, the i mean i guess what we're talking about really is um, ethiopian literature published in english because there's always been ethiopian literature but that's been published in ethiopian languages of which there are many um the, in English, however, there, yeah, it has been. So there's Maaza, there's Dina, Hannah Poole, um has written about going back to Ethiopia. Um, there was a pu- book published, I think this year or last, by Rebecca Fissah in Canada, and she's another person born in Ethiopia, living in Canada.
0: So a lot of these writers are living outside Ethiopia. Uh, yeah. So uh, it's sort of diasporic. Would you would you would you say that?
3: Yes, yes. I mean, and I think that, yeah, there's a sort of. It's almost like there was a sort of there have been various waves of leaving Ethiopia for various reasons um, after the revolution in the 70s. And then um, when the government changed again in the early 90s and, and ongoing, really. And I think what we're seeing in a way is people who have an imagination that goes back to Ethiopia, but actually grew up in English, because I mean, obviously writing a A book in English requires, unless you're Conrad and you know, (laughs) requires a real comfort with the language but also a knowledge of a different culture and I think that's coming together in a real flowering of things.
0: Tell us about your grandparents because your grandparents were tied up with Amharic literature.
3: Yes, it was mostly my grandfather. Um, Ethiopian literature splits a bit between the literature of the church and a a non-church, more demotic literature. Um, the literature of the church is very old, and a lot of it is in a language called Gottes, which is best compared—it's sort of most understandable from a sort of Western viewpoint—as being like Latin. As in, like it's a church language; the the mass is said in in this in Gers. Um It's the sort of scriptures are written Gottes. The the people who come to church don't necessarily speak it at all. Um, and he was a poet in that language. Um, And that poetry is, is called Genné. And it's an extraordinary, um, it's an extraordinary, elusive, complex form of poetry, which is very, very compact, there'll be like two lines, three lines, maybe at the most. But the whole point is to get as much meaning and as much play of meaning. And you can read it, You know, you'll take two lines, you'll read it, and it'll be like a really straightforward meaning. And then it'll be like, you know, in praise of the emperor or something. And underneath it will be a really complicated political dig. And underneath that will be a completely impossible scripture, well, impossible for me, (laughs) as in like, I, you know, having not spent, which my grandfather did, 20 years learning the scriptures by heart. um, uh, You know, really complex references to, you know, ecclesiastical... Do
1: you experience it as a kind of devotional or meditational thing?
3: They're usually spoken. He did it all in his head. He wasn't allowed to write uh, because he was cursed, and that's a slightly different story, by his father. So he did it all in his head. (laughs) He was what? See, writing was was also the preserve of the priesthood. And uh, so it was meant to be used in the service of the church, except that you could... There was a sort of, you know, if you were sort of a fairly naughty teenager, you could also try and do these scrolls, which you thought you were, you know, had sort of magic properties, and it was seen as a total misuse of a, quite a holy. So his father caught him doing this and said, you will never write again. So he rose to be very high in the Ethiopian church. And one, you know, his, his poetry is collected. Actually, his poetry is going to be in a collection by Carcanet, um in May. But he did it all in his head. But your book
0: was not about your grandfather, but no. your grandmother.
3: no. So true.
0: why was why did you want to write about her?
3: Um, well, I guess I just thought people don't write about the women in the lives of important men very much. I mean, that's true here. It's true. it's true all over the world. And I don't know, war and peace is held together by the lives of women who cook and clean and have the babies. And I would listen to her, and she just spoke so well. And her language was so... Vivid and beautifully put together, um, and I just wanted to somehow capture that. But she
0: was illiterate, wasn't she?
3: She was, yeah. So she wasn't. She um, she was supposed to learn to read, um, and I think I think the person charged with learning, with teaching her to read, was a priest. He was this blind priest, um, and I think he largely decided that she was quite bright, and if she if she learned to read, she'd be more trouble than <laughs> than she was worth than it was worth. <laughs> Um, So she had learned her alphabet when she was, but yeah, she didn't learn to read until her 60s. She taught herself to read in her 60s. Um, So I think, I think there is an interesting, I mean, I I go back, I mean, my, the title of my book is is a fairly deliberate reference to um, Chaucer, which is about, and that idea of pilgrimage and storytelling and the kind of language and the kind of, a a culture where the telling of stories and the gifted telling of stories is paramount we're talking about the
0: Canterbury Tales yes we are Um, but and you in the construction of it you you, um, it's almost sort of semi-fictionalised you're passing it on you're becoming part of this oral tradition and writing down your memories rather than saying this thing was said at this particular time. This particular thing was said at this particular time. It's such an interesting form of
3: storytelling. I wanted to give an immersive sense of of the world that she was speaking of. I w- I made a very clear decision that a lot of stories, particular about women, about um, places like Ethiopia, are mediated by a Western voice often. And you know, for what you know, because of my education, because of I am effectively a Western voice um, and I just wanted to take all of that out and and make it so that you could be immersed in the story and she could speak as close as possible from her point of view I don't pretend, I don't do an I from her point of view it's a sort of quite close third person but a lot of it is direct translation of her own telling of her own story
0: and the ondachi prize is for uh, the book of the year that best has a best sense of place so so what you've obviously done very impressively according to a lot of people ob- including me <laughs> is you've evoked ethiopia and what mm. it was like when when she was around
3: yes now i i i put a huge amount of effort into that because i wanted to give a sense of ethiopia as present as possible, what it fel- feels like, what it looks like, what it smells like and tastes like um, and to you know partly as a as a sort of writing decision because it puts you in, if you, you your immersion in a pl- is, is just quicker if you can feel and taste and see and, and smell but also I realised that I felt Ethiopia I mean a lot of Ethiopians feel this that there are a couple of Things about our history, so you know, a couple of famines, a couple of, and particularly in the West, that's all people see. Um, and actually, you know, they were unusual events. They were, um, you know, Ethiopia was is an incredibly agriculturally rich place, which I make a big deal of. I mean, the agriculture is incredibly. I mean, there was a point when they were I sending food aid abroad in the in you know, before before the seventies, um, and. I just wanted to give a sense of Ethiopia as it is, as opposed to how it's seen from outside. Now,
0: I mentioned earlier on, I mentioned Lem Sisse mm-hmm. And uh, Lem is another person who, who is actually British, but mm-hmm. and he was adopted in this country, had very troubled adoption um, life, adopted life, which he has written about in his memoir, My Name Is Why. Um, but he he found that his parents were he actually tracked his mother down who, who who is Ethiopian. Um, he's a force of nature, isn't he? Yes, is, yes, he is. He's brilliant. He was unfortunately unable to join us in person today, but he's given us permission to feature him reading from his epic poem, The Battle of Adduah, which I think has become a bit of a fixture on the Ethiopian school syllabus. Um, t- tell us about what 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 is the significance of the Battle of Adduah?
3: It is it is absolutely central to the way Ethiopians think of themselves um, because it is a point in our history where in 1894 Emperor Menelik signed a treaty um, with the Italians in which the Italian text did not match the Ethiopian text and the Italian text ceded basically most power to the Italians. He signed what he understood which was in Amharic. Um, And the ensuing war in 1896, uh, Emperor Menelik, along with his Empress Taitul, they defeated the Italian forces. It was huge from an Ethiopian point of view because it kept Ethiopian sovereignty. It was also huge from an African point of view because it was the repelling of a a European colonising force. So let's listen in
0: to Lem reading
3: a little bit from that.
1: The Battle of Adwa, 1896 preceding Adwa. Remember this, the Europeans carved up our homes with bloodthirst, not because we were the third world, but because we were the first. Because we held gold in our hearts, because we had diamond for eyes, because oil ran through our veins and a blessing hung in our skies. Remember that when they scrambled in the conference in Berlin, and callously carved Africa, searing each African skin, it was not just because of their greed or need to sow seeds saturated with sorrow, but because through Africa's greatness they envisioned their own great tomorrow.
0: The wonderful Lem Sisse there, reading from the Battle of Adewa. If you want to hear the whole poem, you can find it on YouTube. Incidentally, it was filmed by another Ethiopian star, Ida Mulliner, who's Fabulous water life photographs are touring the world. Catch them if you can. And that's it for this week. Next week, Alexander Boxer will be looking back over the history of astrology and revealing what it tells us about the past and future of science. If you have any thoughts about this week's episode, get in touch on Twitter at Guardian Books or on the podcast page. And you can always subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. But for now, from me, Claire Armistead.
1: Me, Richard Lee.
0: And our producer, Esther Pocugiani. Thanks for listening and goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com podcasts.